My goal is to leave us a, a really a generous amount of time for our discussion because I love preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, the Gospels in general, probably some of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, but the challenge is getting them done in an even remotely timely manner because there's just so much we can talk about. And so tonight, we'll spend a little bit of time diving into just the specifics about what each of those lines in the Beatitude means and really digging into some of the terms that Jesus uses. Um, when, when Jesus pronounces these, these blessings, what he's doing is he's trying to to reprogram us is kind of the language I would think of it as. He's trying to get us to understand that what he calls a good life is not what the world calls a good life. This is because Jesus wants us to understand that the, the material things are, are less important than the spiritual things. He wants us to love people, first and foremost to love one another, but also to love our enemies, to love people who love us, but also love people who hate us. He says to be persecuted for my sake, that is the good life. He wants us to understand that our way, believe it or not, is not the best way. And in fact, the, the Old Testament is full of stories proving this fact, that when we get our way, things do not go well. When we follow God's way, things turn out a lot better. But in spite of this, we often seek our own way. And so I think, why is that? I think normally it's because our way seems better. I mean, sometimes we're just stupid and we make mistakes. We do things that we know that are wrong. But sometimes, the, even when we're making the wrong decision, it just it seems better. Uh, this is true simply when we have a case of the wrong priorities. Like when we put material things over the spiritual things, it, it feels good to be financially independent. It feels good to have nice things. It feels good to have luxurious items. But, but do you ever notice how rich people rarely sit back and say, you know what, this is enough. I've accumulated enough wealth. I don't need to try anymore. I've, I've been... Uh, a big fan of pretty much all the major sports for a long time. And I've often wondered, well, for starters, I'm getting to the age where if you're my age and you play sports, you're old. Like 30-year-old professional athletes are on the downhill of their career, and it's just, I see people who are like 26, 27, 28, and I'm just like, man, we're, are we the same person? Are we made of the same things? But I, I watch them, and I've always wondered why more professional athletes do not retire after the first contract. And you got 20, 30 million dollars, do nothing the rest of your life. Do whatever you want, right? I would never work another day in my life if I had a contract like that. But materialism is kind of this vortex. Generally speaking, the more money you have, the more money you want to have. Money, control, and power in our world, it seems like there is never just enough. The same is true of other sin. Genesis 3, the Bible says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise. Sin has that same attraction today. Many sins and temptations feel good. They're enjoyable on some level. They're indulgent. They, they trick our brain into thinking it's scratching this sort of itch. But they're ultimately bad for us. Sometimes this is more apparent than others, but, but all sin is degenerative. It, it slowly makes you worse from the inside out. But in the short term, it feels good, or it can sometimes. And even as Christians, I think we're sometimes guilty of putting short-term benefits ahead of long-term gains. And tonight, like I said, we're going to dive into some of the specifics of the topics and the terms we use this morning. But right now, I want to look at an example of short-term thinking. And this brings us to Genesis 25. Uh, Genesis 25 starts off with essentially a eulogy of Abraham reflecting on his life as he has passed. But it, it begins by telling us his descendants. And I'll spare you the begats this week. But Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca, and Rebecca gives birth to two boys. Hold on. I don't want to be doing that all night. Rebecca gives birth to two boys, 
And in Genesis 25, 24 is where we will begin. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 25. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Jacob because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Isaac came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore they called his name Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Our lesson tonight we talk about short and long-term thinking, as we talk about spiritual versus material, and as we talk about God's way versus our way, our lesson is simple. Do not sacrifice your birthright for a bowl of stew. Jesus tells us that he came to give us life and to give us life more abundantly, John 10.10. It is easier in some ways to live as the world lives in the short term. And I guess more accurately I should say it seems easier. But, but Jesus says to live for him gives life true meaning. It gives life true purpose, even in spite of all things that the world may throw at us. And so there are times when we may be hungry, where we may be tired and exhausted, where we might be weary, and, and where giving up feels like the easier choice. But dealing with the consequences of sin is never easy. Consider that the first temptation in the garden is when Satan says, if you taste of that fruit, you will be, quote, like God. They must certainly think, well, what could be better in the world? We have everything we want. It's right there in front of us. We reach out and take it. What a rich, alluring promise that was, alas, a lie. They did not know God, but in fact, they were separated from him because of their sin. And from that point on, the text says they knew suffering, they knew struggle, they knew, quote, pain and childbearing. The Genesis says, cursed was the ground. In pain, they ate of it all the days of their life. In the garden, they had everything provided for them. They were taken care of, their needs were met. But because they gave into temptation, from that moment on, they only knew struggle. They only knew pain. Jesus promises that those who believe in him will know life and life more abundantly. Do not sacrifice your birthright, your chance at this abundant life for simply a bowl of stew, because perhaps like Esau, you are tired or you are weary. If you're with us this evening and you are tired, if you are weary, we can help you. We can encourage you. We can pray for you. If you've been chasing what you think the good life is, if you've been following what the world, what our society, what our culture thinks the good life is, rather than accepting what Jesus calls the blessed life, you can change that this evening. If you need the prayers or the help of the church, if you need to be baptized, you can do so now while we stand. All right. So, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm excited to kind of dig into some of the terminology Jesus uses in Matthew 5. Uh, as we begin, I kind of want to review just briefly, just take a couple minutes sort of going over our main points and ideas from this morning. 
So I know we have some people who can only make our Sunday night service, and plus uh, it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of a refresher. But essentially, I don't think I expressly said this, but I kind of broke down the Beatitudes, which is where we are, by the way, if I haven't said that. Matthew 5, uh, 1 through 12. And I kind of broke it down into three different sections. There's a lot of different ways you can look at... Oh, come on. Used to does, it does this to me all the time. Okay, well, I'll, I can fix it. It's not super important, but... That would be great. Thank you, sir. Our AV team is on it. Um, So I divided the the Beatitudes up into kind of three different sections. Uh, Verse 3, 4, and 5 tend to emphasize that these spiritual things are more important than the material things. That, you know, I I don't care if I'm I'm poor because I'm seeking a treasure in heaven. And we'll talk about, the first thing we'll do when we get done with this review is we'll talk about what it means to be poor in the spirit. But that I'm I'm seeking first a treasure in heaven, the, the house not made with hands that 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. When we think of mourning, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, I imagine Jesus, Jesus mourned the loss of this world. He mourned the loss in the world when he, was, when he was here in his ministry. And when I think of the meek, of course, Jesus was the, the epitome of meekness. He was gentle and lowly in heart, as the Bible says. But it, it also means that I don't, I don't need to be self-aggrandizing or, or chest-pounding or blasting about myself because I know my life isn't really about me because I understand that the... Yes, thank you, sir. That these spiritual things are more important than the material things and the things of this world. And so the second one was that if we look at verses 6, 7, and 8, I kind of think of them as having a will that is aligned with God's or understanding that God's will is more important than my will. Because it is not... if. I, uh, in my physical state, sort of just as a human on this world, I am obviously hungry and thirsty. I, I want to eat. I like to drink. I, I sustain myself through bread and water, so to speak. Rarely is it ever bread and water. You can probably tell it's more like burgers and Diet Coke. But um, we, we want to be well fed. We want to be well stocked. We want to be content. But Jesus says what you should want above all things is to be constantly desiring what is right. What is good? To, to hunger and thirst for righteousness means to, to be constantly desirous of that which belongs to God, of God's will. And then, of course, correctness is not retaliation. It's not seeking justice above all things or having to even the score, but it's actually being merciful. The will of God is mercy. It's being kind to those who don't deserve it. And it is pureness in heart. I mentioned just a little bit how our world seems so full of people who have gotten ahead by corruption, by profiteering, by treating other people horribly. But Jesus says to be pure in heart is what it means to live a blessed life. He says, for they shall see God. And the last few, regarding the last few, I said it is to love without limits or love to the point of hurting. I think of that verse in Philippians that says he was obedient even to death, to death on a cross. I also compare some of these verses, especially when it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. I think of that extensive, really that monologue in 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about love. One of the first statements it makes is that love does not insist on its own way, but love is patient and kind. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers. I also want to note, and again, there's another thing we'll talk about a little bit more later on, but peacemaking is not just tolerance. It's not just politeness, but the word here actually means active intervention or active intervention on behalf of somebody else. So to actually jump in 
and, and get in between two warring parties to make peace. It is not antagonizing. When I think of insisting on our own way, I was, uh, I was actually having a conversation with Priscilla earlier this week or a couple weeks ago, and she, I guess it's a very common mother thing. She was like, well, I'm afraid that when we have our second child, Luke is going to think that we don't love him as much. And I'm like, you know, I was the oldest child, and I don't think I ever had that thought. I think I was pretty sure things were always about me. I think I was pretty sure things were always about me, even when they weren't. Like, it was other people's birthday, and I was like, but it's three days after Christmas, so it's pretty much about me. It's not my fault they were born on the 28th. But I think we kind of, you know, we like our way. Our way sounds nice. Our way seems pretty good. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I just, I think of that in light of 1 Corinthians 13, because I think truthfully, when we think of peacemaking in our individual relational sense, especially if you think about probably the biggest relationships in your life, sometimes our biggest hindrance to peacemaking is insisting on our own way. And so I think of those, those verses kind of in tandem to one another when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. The good life is not rest from your enemies, but is when you have pursued Christ above all other things so much that it has separated you from others. I'll share another, I guess, just a little bit of a personal anecdote here. Um, I was surprised at how going into full-time ministry affected my friendships with people. Um, I like to think of myself as always been a Christian and having lived being a Christian life most of my life, most of my life. And so I was kind of surprised that just really over the course of time, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't really decisions we consciously made. You know, we didn't put up fences and say, hey, we can't be friends with you anymore. What we just found is that there were some people that when we hung out with them, our, our goals were aligned. The way we wanted to go with our, our families were aligned. I mean, especially you start talking about having kids and things. I mean, our kids are one and unborn, negative two months, you know. But we're thinking about what are we going to let our kids do in third grade, sixth grade? Are we going to do this? Are we going to handle things this way? And already we find ourselves that, well... It affects relationships sometimes. But I think something Jesus is saying here is that, yeah, if you live according to my will, it it is naturally going to separate you from the world a little bit. And so he says, blessed are you when you are reviled, when you are persecuted. We'll talk about in a minute what it means to be persecuted. But I think when I read verses 10 through 12, it is that we are here to win souls even when we make enemies. Everything, I mean, the heart of the gospel is about soul winning. It's about going. It's about making disciples. And so he says, even adds, I don't think we talked about this much this morning, but he says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, Another powerful, powerful lesson we see when we study the Old Testament as we have been in the last several weeks on our Sunday mornings, really most of the summer. But over and over the prophets they isolate themselves they're reviled by their communities even in the new testament paul says if i become your to his own church he says if i become your enemy by telling you the truth and so we understand that doing the will of god is going to make enemies sometimes so i'll pause for a moment i guess for questions or comments because i kind of have a list of some terms and some things i want to address and get to from from this section uh, but I, I told you guys I, I really, really want to give us opportunity for discussion as we go through these next several chapters because, I mean, these are probably verses you've heard preaching from a thousand times. You've probably had questions about. Maybe you've gotten those answers by now. But uh, I want to give that opportunity. Is there questions on, any, on at least the Beatitudes or anything we talked about this morning? Anything I've mentioned so far or just comments?
I'm assuming that's positive. You had me nervous when you started. And I'll, and I'll, I, know, I know you would never say something. Sandy's too nice. She would tell me quietly if she had something negative to say about me. But <laughs> I, I only say that because I remember when we were in school and you start doing like really heavy research on like the text interpretation and this and this. And our professor told us one time, he said, okay, these have been around for thousands of years. If you come up with an interpretation that no one else has had, you're probably wrong. Okay, if you read a text and you've come to a conclusion that nobody in the thousands of years of Christianity has ever thought that text meant that, you're probably wrong. Um, but I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, they, they are supposed to change us. They absolutely should affect us. They should. It, it's hard to, like I said, I, I love especially these texts, but sometimes it's hard, harder to really think deeply about the passages we've heard our whole life. You know, I would, I would never in a million years accept an assignment to teach John 3.16 to a room full of sort of casual fringe unchristian people. Because they've heard that verse a thousand times. They've thought about it. They just don't care about it. They, they've decided where they're at in relation to that verse. But I, I appreciate you, you saying that for sure. Mm, yes. When you say you, do you mean Christians in general? Or do you mean like specifically in my life? Okay. It was exciting. Yeah, it, and so I'm I'm gonna put a pin in that because if I talk about it too much, I'm gonna end up talking about persecution, which I have about five minutes. I want to say at some point. Um, well, I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll do that. It's toward the end. I was going to go through it. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And, and I, this might not be exactly where you were going with this, but you say it's very hard sometimes for people to understand why we make the choices we make. And I, a little bit of this is probably just my opinion, but I, I do think sometimes I don't love the battlegrounds that Christians choose. Um, and this is really subjective, and I'm going to be careful here, because like I said, I don't want to get too much of my own opinion. But I wish there were some things that we just, especially when it comes to um, not holding the world to Christian expectations. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he said, purge the evil one from among you. You know, what have I with judging the world? Judge the church, purge the wickedness from within you. I think sometimes we get into trouble because we want to fight battlegrounds about the world not adhering to our standards. It's like, what's well, the world? What do you expect? And so I think if we were a bit more vigilant in judging our own ranks as harshly as we sometimes want to die on the hill of how we judge the world, I think that would do us a lot of favors. Um, because typically, just we'll be honest, typically when I talk to people who are either not Christian or they believe in God but they just don't want to go to a church anywhere, and they, they kind of think highly of the Bible but they're just you know one of those people who's on the fence, so to speak, um, there's typically one or two things that stop them. And number one is... 
they have seen or read or heard that Christians believe blank and they don't believe blank. So they don't want to talk to Christians. And you can fill in that blank whoever you like. All right, I'll keep it relevant for the last 40 years because a lot of things you could put there. And then number two is they know Christians in their life. They know people who go to church and they feel like those people are horrible people. They, they know people who are Christians. They think, well, they're a liar. They're a cheater. He's, he's you know, scamming in his business or he treats his family poorly or I know something about his relationship with his wife or kids that's horrible. And so they think, okay, well, if I see on the news that Christians believe this and the Christians I know in my personal life are not very good people, why would I want anything to do with that? And so I think, unfortunately, especially in our, in our culture, I think we can blame other people, but the truth is that in a lot of ways, we've, we've lit our own fires, you know? There, there are, I understand that not all Christians are bad, but I do believe all Christians have sinned. Absolutely. And it, a really, I didn't, again, this is another one of those things I, I want to talk about, I just didn't have time. Um, I believe it's either the end of Romans 5 or it's Romans 6 when Paul talks about either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And I love that passage because Paul does not present a no slavery option. <laughs> he says, if you're of the world, you're slave to your sin. And I mean, all you got to do is talk to somebody who's been, you know, dragged into any kind of temptation to know that you can absolutely be a slave to sin. And so Paul says, be a slave or a servant. To righteousness, to that which produces fruit, to that which uh, bears an eternal reward, not that which leads to decay and death. Um, something just in terms of Christianity leading to a life that is full of true joy and real happiness and uh, almost inner peace to get real Eastern meditative about it, I guess. Um, Yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It was really, we read and we read and I read and read. And it's just being in that spot. And it really set where you actually had these stones to get this. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the reasons Luke presents it a little bit differently, and one of the, there's a ton of different ways to interpret that, but one of them is that Jesus probably only had about five or six sermons that he just preached a bajillion times in his three-year ministry. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't get, end up doing this on BBS, but something I wanted to do, just because I've watched a few videos, but I couldn't find ones that I just love. Um, I love watching videos, whether they're... Um, most of them are made by the churches. Sometimes they're just film productions of Jesus speaking just because, okay, I can sit there and I can tell you in every frame the things that might be not historical versus historical. But just sit back for a minute and try and actually imagine it, you know. Be sitting on the sand and you're a farmer who's in your normal day, you go out and you pick just enough grapes off the ground to, to feed your family that night. Your house is this little adobe clay thing with this small little hole. Your floor is dirt. You got Birkenstocks and a robe on and that's pretty much your everyday. And you're hearing this guy talk about stuff that's just insane. I mean, it is, it is to them. They're like, what? Blessed are the persecuted? Are the meek? Are the mourn? What are you saying? 
in the, I think when you really put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' audience, you can kind of start to get the meaning of it wash over you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I said I wanted to talk about this, and I don't know how much time I'm going to have, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. Um, put a pin in Matthew 5 and flip over to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen. Paul lists what being persecuted is like for the early church. 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen. 16. Mm. I'll tell you about 2 Corinthians 11, and we will start in verse 22. Paul says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brothers. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? He says, I would not, could not in a house. I would not, could not with a mouse. (laughs) In a hat with a cat. I've been in danger everywhere you can be in danger. So I read that. Now look at Matthew 5 when Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I would dare say, by the standard of what Jesus means when he says persecuted, by the standard of what Paul says when he means persecuted, if you are sitting in this room tonight, you are not and probably, I'm going to say probably, have not been persecuted for your faith. I say that because there is an increasing trend among people I love, among people I adore, among people I identify with as Christians. I identify with them. You know, socially we agree on our values in life. Who feel like Christians in America are persecuted, and it's about the foolish thing I've ever heard. Are there people out there doing things we don't agree with? Absolutely. Are there people promoting things on the news from the White House that we don't agree with? Absolutely. You know what? Yes, we had state lockdowns. Okay, uh, I know this might have happened in some cities, but I was in a little 20-person church in North Alabama, and the deputies weren't coming door-to-door, taking our Bibles, burning the church down if we met anyway. If you live, there are Christians in the world who are persecuted. In South America, in India, in parts of the Ukraine, in Vietnam, in places where religion is illegal, where state atheism is enforced, where Bibles are taken and burned, where you cannot meet in a place of worship, you cannot build a place of worship. We are not persecuted. We're just not. And to be honest with you, it's an insult to the Christians who have been for us here to say that we are. I'll tell you what can happen. Yes, you can make a post and your friends on Facebook will get mad at you. You can make a post and people will reply on Twitter and call you all sorts of mean names. But they're not coming to your house with sticks. They're not dragging you out and beating you in the streets. And the police officers aren't going door to door kicking us out of churches. 
The truth is, for most of us in this country, we have the luxury of not being persecuted. And then just number two, and I'll get off my soapbox about this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The other time I see Christians being persecuted is sometimes we get persecuted not for looking like Jesus, but just for being a jerk. (laughs) Sometimes people are mean to you online because you're kind of being foolish in the way you're going about talking about what you believe. And I'm not talking to anybody specific in here. I'm not even online very much anymore in terms of social media because it just gets me mad at people I don't need to be mad about. (laughs) You know, I don't need to waste the energy. Yes, I understand that not everybody in the world will agree with us on all things. The Bible actually tells us they won't agree with us on anything. So if they agree with you on some things, take it as a luxury and run with it. But the truth is, guys, we're not persecuted. We're very blessed to be live in a place where we have freedom of religion. And I think what happens is some of us, probably not me, I don't think this is my experience, maybe my grandmother would say she was old enough to remember a time where it felt like more people agreed with her way of thinking, where more people were Christian, where maybe Christian values more, more upheld than they are now. And I can look at that and agree that there's been a degradation in that regard. That doesn't mean we're persecuted. It's okay to have a little bit of middle ground thinking. And uh, I, I, at the risk of being a hypocrite who normally invites discussion, I'm almost not going to happen on that because I don't want to upset anybody and I don't want to get into a back and forth. But if you look at just 2 Corinthians 22 through 33 that I just read, if you look at Jesus dying on a cross and being falsely accused of saying something he didn't say, Unless a whole lot changes in my lifetime, and it very well could, most of us are probably not going to end up dying for our beliefs. And we're very blessed in that regard. So. And there is. Yeah, yeah. It they're they're getting they'll get attacked and they might get hate, but I mean by the standards of the way Jesus uses this word. Um, life can be hard for us sometimes. Life is we can certainly have life a little bit harder, but I mean even then, you're typically talking about. Business owners, um, you know, Farmer Joe, who keeps to himself and just sort of thinks what he thinks about relationships, about families, about what people do or don't do before they get married. That's, that might get you some pushback. It might get people some angry at you. But the truth is, it, I have a hard time when other Christians in this country, of all the places in the world, say they're persecuted. Because last I checked, we're still not quite... I think the majority in terms of religious affiliation now is what they call the nuns, right? It's people who don't identify at all. Okay, but you look at uh, people who believe anything, most people are going to check the box Christian still. Um, Yeah, right, exactly. Um, And and so, and I I guess, again, the second half to that is um, sometimes we get pushback and it's, you know, people aren't mad at you for what you believe. Sometimes they're mad at you for the way you said it or how a situation was handled. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians well-intended kind of get pulled off sides into an argument and kind of make themselves look like a fool when I almost wonder if you'd, you know, because there's a fine line between taking a stance and uh, 
what's that saying about arguing with an idiot, you know, <laughs> or a fool or an eight-year-old or a three-year-old or whatever the more appropriate version of that is, I guess, or tactful. Um, I just think sometimes we get into arguments we, we don't need to get into because the world is going to be the world. Judge the church. Um, in that vein, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' most fire and brimstone preaching, like his harshest, the angriest Jesus gets, you know who he's talking to? He ain't talking to, yeah, he ain't talking to the Romans. He ain't talking to the Greeks. He ain't talking to the Gentiles. He ain't talking to the pagans. He's not going into the temple of Artemis and saying, cracking the whip. He went into David's temple. He went into where the Jews were. His fire and brimstone preaching is to the church. It ain't to the world. His preaching to the world is blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are merciful. Blessed are you who are pure in heart. The angriest he gets is when his people aren't doing what they should be doing. And I think sometimes we get that level of mad when people of the world act exactly the way Jesus tells us people of the world are going to act. That don't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I understand this is something there's probably a lot of room for a debate, if not at least a little. Um, it just doesn't sit well with me, and I'm not sure it wins us any favors, you know? I, I, I really tried. I'll say this one thing, and I'll let you. I'm sorry. Um, I'll say just one thing. It was something, uh, well, Mike Lewis, he's a minister at the Fire Mountain Church of Christ, told me when I first got into ministry, he said, you can be right or you can be effective sometimes. I get there's plenty of opportunities to do both, but I can't tell you, um, I have, yeah, I'll say this. I have a lot of friends in college, um, from college, who are probably in relationships, I'll say that, that I wouldn't necessarily approve of from a religious Christian standpoint. I don't think a single one of them has read my Uncle Joe's comment about a picture of the White House online or a certain flag being displayed somewhere and gone, man, that guy going off about that really made me think about how I'm going to live my entire life. That just changed my whole perspective. No, you know what he thinks? Man, that Uncle Joe guy seems like a jerk. Whoever this guy is that is claimed to be Christ, he kind of just seems like a jerk. And I think if we put the idea of winning souls above all other things... I think we would actually have less arguments. Yes. Filled with what? I think that's where, and this is something I will not at all have time to address, but I think that is where we can learn a lot by how Jesus mentored, and Paul is another great example in Acts. Um, like, I, I look all the time at the example of Paul in the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. Is A riot happened, but Paul didn't go in there starting a riot. You know, He didn't go in with a pitchfork and a burden saying, we need to burn this temple down because you're a bunch of pagan sinners. You know he starts that conversation with a room full of pagans? He says, I perceive that you are very religious. Which to me sounds extremely sarcastic, <laughs> but I think he's being serious. He said, you have a lot of altars, so I, I think you believe in a lot of gods. Tell me more about this god you believe in. And he engages them in a conversation. You just don't, like I said, when you see Jesus get as angry as he's talking to the church, I think what happens is we get angry and we get embattled and we get dug in. And 
believe strongly, believe wholeheartedly, but I think sometimes we can get kind of drawn into wanting to be right and win an argument rather than win a soul. And you just got to think, am I going to help this person get to heaven right now? Like, tell them what you believe. Absolutely. Be firm about what you believe. Don't negotiate about what you believe. Don't compromise on what you believe. Uh, but I'll also tell you, you know what? Uh, Jesus, he, he, he called his shots a little bit or picked his shots. Um, he didn't win every battle. He didn't win every conversation. And there's a whole lot of people he just didn't even have conversations with, <laughs> frankly. Um, th- there's a reason Caesar was alive at the time. One of them. Don't catch me on that, history people. But one of the Caesars was alive at the time. Most powerful men on earth. Jesus should have walked into that capital in Rome and just told him what was what. Eh, maybe. But he didn't. Why? Because that's not going to get him anywhere. He had stuff to do, man. He had people who did want to hear what he wanted to talk about. And go where the people want to hear you. This the other, ugh, I'm really bad at chapter, book, and verse, but I know it, this is one of those I know it's in there somewhere. He says, if they don't accept you, dust off your shoes and go to the next town. Um, I, I hope... I have not sounded like I think we should compromise on our faith um, because I, you know, I, I get that we don't and we can't and you've got to believe what you want to believe. But I think just the way we tell people how we believe what we believe can go. I mean, okay, uh, anyone here ever been a teenager? <laughs> and everyone been told by your parents, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. Well, I think sometimes we lose people not because of what we're saying but because of how we're saying it. And uh, I just don't, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of conversations. Most of the conversations I see between a Christian and a non-Christian, it does not look like the Christian is trying to win their soul. And that hurts. Because I can't tell you guys, and this is where I know this is a generational thing, but I cannot tell you how many people I talk to my age who have been badly, badly wounded by someone who claimed to be a follower of Christ. Who have experienced something that they're like, I don't want to talk to you about that. Why would I believe that? Why would I align with this person? And it's not just because they said, hey, I don't approve of this kind of relationship. It's because they felt like they were really in, again, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm going in circles, but like I said, I understand we can't compromise in our faith, but I think we, can, we can't change what we believe, but we can change how we say it. We can absolutely adapt our approach. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Peter did it. Uh, the disciples did it. The apostles did it. I think we absolutely can adapt our approach. Yeah. 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 The devil will lead good Christians into battles with sinners, whereas Christ wants us to preach the gospel to show a better way than sin. Yeah. And that's what we've got to remember. We are here to preach the gospel, but all too many times we we get into an ad hominem or a personal attack on the sinner. And, you you know... Or I, I've done... Okay, there's people who are listening to this who are like, Terrence, you are the pot calling the kettle. Yeah, I've done this. I've gotten into an argument where I have realized I want to win that argument more than I give... A rat's behind what happens to that person. Because you just get dug in. You get angry. You get mad. They start attacking your family, and you get upset. You're like, I've got to tell this person I know they're wrong. But you're not, you're not winning any souls doing that. Do you think about you know, the, well, the rich man, you know, how, how do I get to heaven? You sell everything you have and follow me. What did the guy do? Turn around and walk off. I mean, you know, he just didn't really want to tell him the answer because he knew what the guy's response was yeah. going to be. You know, and... We've, That's a worthy study passage, too. We've got to have love, respect, tact, and we've got to make sure that we remember what we're called to do. And, you know, we're not going to save everybody, and that, that is sad. Yeah. But we need to save as many as, as we can by preaching the gospel to them and letting Jesus provide the salvation. Yeah. Michael, you had your hand up, so I'll call on you. 
Absolutely. 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 Wilton, you, uh, did you have your hand up as well? Did you have your hand up? Maybe, okay. I, I just saw the corner of my eye. I just want to make sure. Um, I'm going to read the verse he referenced just because uh, I quoted it, but it was a uh, butchering. Um, it's from Matthew 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 11 because I think it really encapsulates what we're talking about. <coughs> Matthew 10, 11. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And we could debate what it means there by, by worthy or not worthy and peace coming upon it. But verse 14, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And he says, look, man, people don't want to hear you. Judgment day is coming. I'll deal with them. <laughs> You know, you, you guys have ever had multiple kids and one kid gets upset because you're punishing one of them and not the other one and they want to hit them back because they hit them? I kind of feel like we do sometimes. And Jesus has to be the parent thing. He's like, I'll, I'll deal with them. You worry about you, you know? You, you, you get you together and I'll deal with the other kids. How many times does Jesus Absolutely. Well, and, yeah, you're, yeah, I think it's hard because I know for a time, probably a lot of us, some of us grew up in, in an age that was very fire and brimstone preaching, and I think there's a, I think that was effective for a time, I think that might have been, I think there still is a time for that, um, but I, I've been in a lot of Bible studies with people, I've had a lot of conversations with people uh, who just straight up were not living at all like Christ. But I never got anywhere if I start the conversation with, this is how you're sinning and you're going to hell if you don't change. I have not had a, I, like I said, it might be effective for some people, but I have not had a single productive conversation that started that way. You pointed out that he ate with sinners, showed them they were loving, had a conversation with them. Yes, he did. But what he did in his first ministry, this is why we studied this the way that we did. Jesus calls his disciples, and in verse 23, some of the first things he does after calling his disciples, before he has preached a single word, he went all about Galilee teaching where? In the synagogues, trying to teach to Jews, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. 
Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. I bet you people would be a lot more here willing to hear what we think about their relationships if we were willing to sit down with them and help them with all the other problems they got in their life. Because guess what, y'all? A lot of the people out there living the ways we don't agree with have a lot of stuff going on between their ears and in their hearts. They got a lot of stuff going on. And if we were willing to hear them out and help them with that and then have a conversation about the things they're doing that we think are sinful, I bet we'd get a lot further. And I... I understand that might be an opinion, but I believe it's one modeled after the way Jesus did his ministry. It's modeled after how Paul did his, how Peter conducted his. I think it's very biblical. And I'm going to put a pin in that for now because I didn't get to address quite as many things as I wanted to. But like I said, I feel like I really need to talk about persecution and just sort of the way we handle things sometimes. I'm going to go ahead and close us in a word of prayer, and we will be dismissed. God, I, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the individuals who have made the decision to come back tonight to, to learn more about your word, to dive deeper, to, to bring the shovels, roll up the sleeves, and dig into these hard topics. I thank you for that freedom I mentioned, and I pray that we never take it for granted that we do have the ability to come worship, that we have the ability to call ourselves a church, to have an established place where we can worship you, where people don't show up. They don't, they don't want to kill us for what we believe, and that's just such a blessing compared to how so many Christians have lived their lives throughout all of history. And I pray that we never take that for granted. I pray that the, the social pressure we do endure, the reviling that we will hear, the hateful language we will have to endure, I pray that that will roll off our backs, that we really can see the joy in that persecution, that we will, that we will not dig in, that we will not get into fights we don't need to get, that we will always conduct ourselves modeling you. I thank you all for all of your daily blessings, God. I pray that what we've done has brought us closer to you. It's brought us a deeper understanding of your word. And I pray that it's something that can, little by little, change our hearts to bring us more molded into that shape that you call us to be. We ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen.